Hello, I'm Rebecca Castellino, and this is Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to talking to artists on the fringes of the Canadian art scene. Daura Campos is a Latinx, self-taught, lens-based artist and curator based in Belo Horizonte, Brazil. Her photographic practice challenges traditional image-making processes, revealing itself as more than a meta-commentary with a subtext that prompts broader conversations on the implications of existing in a dissonant body. Her What the Luck series was awarded by Adolescent and exhibited in Experimental Photo Festival, Visual Space, Make Room, and has been displayed on billboards in New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, and Toronto. Earlier works have been published globally by Curated by Girls, Container Love, The Soon Project, and others. Our conversation was recorded in Hamilton within Treaty 3 territory on the ancestral land of the Haudenosaunee and Anishinaabe nations under the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Agreement. Hey, Daura. Hi, Rebecca. How's it going? I'm doing just fine. And you? I'm good. Um, a bit hot, but I'm just hanging out with uh, with my cat doing podcast stuff today. What's their name? Baby Waffles. Oh, I love it. <laughs> I just adopted her and she came with the name Waffles, but it didn't really suit her. So Baby Waffles it became. <laughs> Say hi to her for me. I will. I think she's sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, where are you right now? I'm in Belo Horizonte, Brazil sitting right in front of my window because it's cold and hot today and looking at some very orange skies basically yeah it's very moody moody yeah sounds pretty it's still just like intensely bright here (laughs) but no beautiful orange now i'm jealous yes but if you come to think about it the orange is because of the pollution so it's pretty but bad (laughs) The world is on fire. <laughs> yes, pretty much. But um, I thought that we just start at the beginning for, for listeners and for me. Um, in your bio, it says that you're a self-taught artist. How did you start teaching yourself? How did you start getting into art? So uh, it's pretty funny just to think about it nowadays because it's been almost three years since I've started. But basically, at the time, I was studying medicine. I was in med school. And my friend was studying abroad in Spain, I believe. Yes, Spain. And I went to visit her for the holidays and Christmas and everything. And I wanted to just document stuff. And I just felt like, oh, I might get a camera because, you know, for some reason, I didn't want to just photograph on my phone. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly realized that cameras are expensive (laughs) (laughs) and I couldn't afford one being like a full-time student. So for some reason, film cameras were back on the internet and people were talking about them. And I thrifted one for what at the time was what thinking maybe $50, Mm -hmm. which right on budget. So I purchased that. And just proceeded to photograph during the trip. And I didn't really knew a lot at the time. I just read the manual and just how to make the shutter work and the aperture and very basic stuff. Okay. And yeah, I made a lot of mistakes. I don't have (laughs) most of the photos. 
from that travel. But after that, I just got really addicted to photographing and waiting for the results. It was a big part, just anticipating what it would look like. Mm-hmm. And I just proceeded to watch YouTube videos, very basic stuff like most of us do. And then I started to research all the photographers. I think the first one that I saw and I read about was Nan Golden. Oh, cool. Yes. And I was very interested. And then I started to get more into the conceptual part of the artwork, if you will. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't an artwork. I was just documenting like I would go on streets and photograph just to do something with my day. But yeah, that's pretty much it. That's so cool that like you kind of fell into film photography in a certain way. Cause like I don't have a photo mm-hmm. background, but like film is so magical, like from what I do know about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it feels magical. And I feel like I never, once I got my first roles back and they weren't as I hoped they would be. And because of my own fault, I realized that I never really cared for something that much mm. because I was destroyed. I was like, no, I don't oh. have these memories anymore, which, okay, I nowadays I like the photos even <laughs> though they're destroyed. But I realized, oh, maybe there's something here and something worthwhile. So I just started to spend more time than I should because I was studying another thing. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I think... Um... To come at it from, like, the happy accident is so lovely, especially, yeah, being self-taught. And thank goodness for YouTube for teaching me everything. Gee. <laughs> yes. Um, but what were some of the other artists that you looked at? I think Nan Golden makes a lot of sense for, like, your work and, and the way that it went. Was that why you got into, like, sh- photographing people? Or were there other things that you were looking at? Um, I think... Nan Golding was the first one, and then Lawrence Philomen okay. was. Oh, I love, one. I love them. Yes. <laughs> yes, I love their work so much. Honestly, I fangirl a little bit sometimes on Instagram. Same, but <laughs> yeah, I found their work and more contemporary artists because of the internet. Mm-hmm. Were you on Tumblr? And- Oh, I grew up on the same. So that's how we both found Lawrence Philomen because that's how I found the contemporary art scene too. Mm, I think I found them on Instagram oh. because I was on Tumblr around 2012, 14, 15-ish. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And I was very much involved in the fandom side of Tumblr. Same. <laughs> so I don't think I, if I saw their work before, I didn't recognize it. I only mindful, I don't know, consumed it. Through Instagram and then their website and stuff. Well, I love that it was through social media anyways. Like, that's how a lot of people I find find artists, through mm-hmm. Instagram. Yeah, it's really helpful and started to inform me a lot. Not only their work, but the other artists I would find. And when I first started to just research, the first people that would come up were portraiture artists. Mm. And I then started to take portraits of my friends. And that's how it came to be more of a serious thing. Kind of another happy accident because then people I didn't know were reaching out to me. Like, can you take my portrait? Can you take my picture? And of course I can. But thinking that I was still a full-time student then and film costs a lot of money Mm -hmm. and the processing and everything else, 
I started to charge like a minimal fee just to cover my expenses. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, yeah. I just, I couldn't do it for free. <laughs> and I kind of grew into it. And I, like I said, it started to take more of my time than I anticipated. And it started to make me a little bit of money, not enough to just drop everything and devote myself to it. Mm-hmm. But it was when things started to take gear more so. But it was, I think, around November, October 2019. So it's not so long ago, I think. Um, I was wondering about the, the pictures that you did take of your chosen family. Oh, okay. That was my first project, like, I say project ever. Mm-hmm. Because I... Mm, because the way that I work now, I first conceptualize things and then I go into making it. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that did this did happen, where I was thinking, okay, I want to talk about this and I want to do this, this, this. And then I went ahead and did it. But at the time, I was just very much into portraiture, which I'm not as much into now mm-hmm. in my personal work. And I felt like I wanted to say something not say but do something related to more or so social justice mm-hmm. because I think at least I got more involved in it as I came of age I'm 23 and at the time I was 21 I think mm-hmm. or 22 ish I don't know anymore what is time anyway yeah. <laughs> but I was thinking of how I could do that and I was getting more involved in my life if mm. you will so. yeah and more involved with just nurturing these relationships with queer people and racialized people and really seeing how how it evolves through time and through these circumstances, especially here in Brazil, which are not the best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's when I first thought, okay, I'm going to make something about it. So I just talked to a couple of people that I knew wanted to be photographed and that were more so comfortable with me or that I had got to know through social media or that has have done some type of work related to portraiture. And we just sat and made a whole day out of it. Um, but one of your projects from like 2021, What the Luck, I feel like it, it has some of that portraiture still in it. And the next mm-hmm. thing I was going to ask you was about the abstraction component because I feel like that project takes those flaws and like the weird things that were happening with film and kind of meshes it together with like the more narrative kind of stuff you were doing yes this project the what the luck one i was i'm still into portraiture but i was a feeling i was feeling a little bit disconnected but i was really using portraiture as a way to project what mm-hmm. i wanted to say mm-hmm. and not not that that's necessarily bad because there's a lot of artists that do that but I didn't think I didn't think I was being fair to the people I was photographing Mm. if I was doing that and when I got into the Wapi Luck project I it was my first project that I received the grant for and I had a limited amount of time to deliver I think it was a month or so Mm -hmm. and I did this I was in the countryside where I, I grew up and I was with my friend and we were thinking, okay, maybe we can create a narrative out of this. Mm-hmm. And But we, we didn't really know what it was going to look like. 
especially because I was thinking of soup in the film afterwards, which is <laughs> where the abstract component comes in. And we, I just got the photos, I think, about a week before the deadline. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, now I'm going to make something out of this. And once I made it, I realized that there was a narrative element of that was going on Mm -hmm. and there's a color story because i shot three rows of film and each row came a different color Mm. and each row was also a different person type of way because i shot one person in a row a b and c row oh wow so i really felt like i could make a story out of these quote-unquote characters because we weren't really how do I say this? We weren't really creating something that happened. Like yeah. It was not documentary photography. For sure. Which is still, that's the debate there, but just <laughs> being more black and white. I can see like two colors. Um, What were the three colors of film? Like the blue and the yellow? Yeah, I, I think the first one was yellow in which I soup with, I think, some herbal tea. I won't remember <laughs> which one I nice. play anymore. And the blue one was with beetroot kombucha mm. because my mom makes tons of kombucha. So nice. I just have it laying around. And the other one was also with some type of kombucha, but it got ruined during processing. So I didn't get to use that one. And I think I'm thinking, okay, well, I can do with this. And I got the blue and the yellow one. And I was like, okay, maybe I can make this story. But I also... I'm not so keen of the idea of just delivering something nowadays that is very, how does it is? It's very transparent. Like you see and you know what it is. Mm. I think this feels yeah. more like a, like a memory, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. And like, yes. like you said, this is um, like imaginary or, or made up, but um, the colors, you're right. They do make the narrative. And I, I don't really know why, but I, I like that you saw that and like ran with it because it's, it seems very intentional to me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it because it was in the post-processing, but not when I got the film the first time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I felt like I have these two characters and I can make something out of it. And I think it really depends on more of what you or whoever else is going to be looking at the photos than what I think they are. But mostly my main idea was to have these two characters in some type of relationship. You can just go with what you think it's best. Is it romantic? Is it a platonic relationship? Mm-hmm. But see it develops, developing through time. And my main idea would be that if you started from the first to last image, you'd see one narrative. Hmm. And if you started from the last and gone back to the first one, it would be a different narrative. Mm -hmm. But the main point, like the climax, if you will, would be the third image, which is the one where it's green. It's when they first, like, not meet, but connect. Because you can see both of their gazes and that's like the two colors melting together, basically. But yeah, it was it was pretty intense because I was so anxious of Aww. having little time and messaging my mentor like, Petria, please help me. I don't know what to do. <laughs>
that, I think that's really cool though. And like now you're in two residencies and like this work you made within a month, it, it feels like your practice is starting to become very like project based in a, in an mm-hmm. interesting way. Do you feel like um, you have one consistent practice and these residencies are like channeling it or like these are very much like prompts for you to make a project? I think I'm more of a project based person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just, I, I don't know why, but for example, if I'm doing a reading, I start taking notes and after a few minutes, I come up with a project. <laughs> Even if I don't make it at some point in the future, I just have it there. Mm-hmm. It's very hard for me to just look at an image and see it standing alone mm. and know how to work with that. But I appreciate people who can because I think that's much more difficult. <laughs> It's interesting to see how you work and like um, being under time pressure. Mm, yeah, I I feel like with the roundtable residency, it's a shorter one. It's a month and a half, I believe. Mm-hmm. So it, it helps me because I then have to fulfill some type of deadline mm. because there's a critic groups and at some point there's going to be an exhibition and there's studio visits. So I feel pressured but not in a bad way to deliver work gotcha gotcha because I really I really like feedback (laughs) I love feedback so in terms of a community are you surrounded by a lot of other self-taught artists where you are um not really (laughs) (laughs) I I do have my friends who aren't artists and I do have a few friends who study art in a more institutional way. Mm-hmm. So they go to art school. But here I feel like I'm, I'm not going to answer for like Brazil because it's for a sure. huge country. But in Belo Horizonte and the people that I have access to, most of the artists I know study in a, in a college and in a university art. Mm-hmm. But it's very focused on painting and drawing and not as much on other types of art. So sculpture and photography. Hmm. I don't think I have any self-taught artist friends at all. Interesting. So, yeah. And then your friends I, who've gone to school, like, are those the people that like you're texting and you're in conversation with? Or do you feel like you're having like a different conversation? I think we have different conversations. I feel something that's very weird, but also interesting to think about now. I mean, nowadays, I'm saying nowadays too much. (laughs) But it's something that I think about a lot is that I first started to think about my practice as a practice and think about the work that I'm doing as art when I was in school. Mm -hmm which was not technically an art school. And I started to just try and find community and trying to bond with people over art as a whole. Mm -hmm. But it was also right when quarantine started. Yeah. So I just gone back to the internet and trying to find people to talk about it with. Mm -hmm. And most of it were in these international spaces and mostly like American people and Canadian people. So I feel like even the way it's very, it's very weird to me, but even the way that I talk about my practice, I almost think in English rather than Portuguese because I have only been not only, but mostly having conversations about it 
in English. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's hard for me sometimes to just conceptualize and be able to communicate. Wow. So do you write about your work in Portuguese as well, or you're exclusively writing about your art in English? I don't write in Portuguese oh, at all. <laughs> oh, like, wow. I, yeah, I usually write, usually no, I don't know why I'm saying usually, because I'm always writing in English. And it's very funny to me, because what happens usually is I'm either thinking about something, and then I have an idea, think of something completely different and have an idea and I go down and write on my notebook and I write it in English or I'm reading a text which usually is in English as well because the internet mm -hmm. <laughs> and then I just write quotes or something that inspires me or that just made my brain tingle when I read it and then I write it in English and make comments in English even though it's not my first language yeah I don't feel like I don't know I don't feel like that really interferes with the end result because my work is mostly about identity and mm -hmm. Latin American identity and Brazilian identity and all these other all the other stuff. But even though the subtext or the text itself is about that, the images aren't necessarily mm -hmm. even now because I'm more into working with abstract images or abstract ish. No, I was just curious, um, like also in terms of like reading online, like whether your your social media content is like mostly English or mostly Portuguese. Um, just, yeah, I feel like I'm in such a bubble, just like English being my first language and like my French not being that good. <laughs> um, um, but yeah. I, I was wondering if you want to talk a bit more about the baths that you were doing, because I feel like that's really important to your abstract process and, and also thinking about film in, in general. Yeah, I... I kind of started, I feel like most of my practice started out of me trying to respond to something that was happening mm. in my life. But at the time, I was doing only portraiture work and I was very much, I, I was very much drained with the whole grant application processes yeah. and applying for exhibitions and stuff, which in retrospect, I shouldn't be because <laughs> I was six months in nice in photography so it doesn't really make a lot of sense for me to be this obsessive about it but at the time I was very upset with that mm -hmm. and felt very disconnected but photography was also like this it still is this huge part of my life and I didn't want to make it have it become something that I don't like anymore mm. because of external approval or something like that. And I was starting to look into alternative processes. And I saw someone I know from like my community here in Brazil doing film soaps. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And what it basically is, is you cook the film after you shot it. You can do it before, but I don't recommend it because you can ruin your camera. True. So do it, do it after you shot it. So I basically just shoot something, photograph something I want you. And once that part is done, I go ahead and cook the film quite literally in a <laughs> pan <laughs> with water and different ingredients to just make it look different. 
And that's basically how I was going about it when I first started. I just wanted to not look like a Canon portrait. Mm -hmm. And I started to really enjoy the process, especially because it kind of, I'm just realizing this, but it kind of just brought me back to my first time shooting where I would ruin the film by mistake. (laughs) Nice. But now I was doing it on purpose. Mm -hmm. And then I started to think, why this process was so interesting to me and how I could start using it in my practice outside of just wanting to have fun with with my photos. Mm -hmm. And most of my work is nowadays, I say that it's mostly about the implications of existing in a distant body, Mm. which I like to use this specific word or expression, distant body, because I feel like it, it's a huge umbrella and I, I'm a big fan of intersectionality. So I don't really see interpreting someone or myself as just one thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like there's a lot of intersecting identities and I like to think how they impact in our lives and seeing, because if you're even a little bit marginalized, I don't think there's such a thing as a little bit marginalized, but you know, yeah. <laughs> if you're marginalizing one way, it's already a lot of violence. Mm-hmm. And thinking of what I was doing with the film, because it's such a process where I'm almost destroying it. And sometimes I'm destroying it. And then I have to take care of the aftermath and deal with that. Mm-hmm. And how that looked a lot like, I hate to say this, but like the human experience in a way. <laughs> For sure. Because we, I'm, I'm saying we, but it's like also an umbrella thing, go through a lot of stuff and then we have, or we try to pick up the pieces and move on. And I see, start to see my roles almost like little people because I'm always mm. shooting, not little people, you edited that out. <laughs> I started to see my roles as people because I usually shot portraits and these photos I was taking of my friends and the people that I was being commissioned to were always restricted into the canister. Then I was inflicting this damage and violence and then taking care of that canister. Hmm. It almost feels like kind of a healing thing. Like as much as you are going through this violent process of like, cooking <laughs> the film <laughs> it also feels like very like loving and kind of like um like witchy in a kind of way <laughs> like the chamomile that you add like chamomile is a very like specific healing kind of uh tea and herb what okay. is there any meaning behind any of the ingredients that you're adding and uh yeah like reflecting on it being like healing or medicine yeah at first i didn't really think about it I was just trying to have fun with the film and see how it looked like afterwards but I was at a group critique and a friend of mine Hyacinth they asked me oh the same question basically what are you putting in your soup does it matter and I was like oh it it could matter (laughs) it doesn't (laughs) right now but it could and afterwards like in the what the Luck project, I was shooting my friends and I photographed one of my friends, Louisa, which is, I think, the main character in a way. Mm-hmm. She's the one that you mostly see in the images. And she's very much into tea. And I was like, oh, I'll, I'll soup her images 
good tea because that's something she likes. Aww. But I, yeah, yes, I, I really enjoy it. And then, but also I use like this base ingredients every time mm -hmm. just so I have, I don't have control, but I have a little bit of control. Yeah, like consistency. Yes. And then I started to think about my other friends and what they mean and well, not what they mean, but what they like and what food or what other ingredients they relate to or they like the most just it becomes a little bit more personal mm -hmm. and nowadays I think for the past I want to say four months I have been only shooting my home and then I started to use ingredients that I have inside my house as well that I normally use So I'm trying to be more mindful of it just to have this extra layer of meaning in a way. Even if people don't really care, I care. <laughs> <laughs> cool. And do you see it as like a, a healing thing? Like I feel like the, the cooking, it does feel very destructive, but cooking is such like a loving act too. I was wondering like what your thoughts are behind the process. Yes, I I don't know if I would say healing, mm. but it's it's kind of a roller coaster moment. Because okay. I first photographed and then I just let the film sit untouched for weeks in a row. I don't know why. I just don't want to deal with it right away. And then I go and prepare myself kind of psychologically to cook because I know it's very time sensitive and it really depends on how much stuff I put in. So how much salt I put in, how much lemon juice, because mm. they are the most destructive things that yeah. I usually add. And then I know that I have to be watching. So it's kind of, I want to say it is like, but it's kind of watching a little kid. Huh. <laughs> because you do have to pay attention. I, I have done so many mistakes as of now, but you have to pay a lot of attention and just stir it and then you have to rinse it. And then I feel like the healing and more careful process comes in because then I really need to just diminish a little bit of the damage I've done. Mm -hmm. So it's more of now I'm taking care of you, but I was just beating you before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This week's podcast recommendation is hosted by curator and art historian Nadia Kurd. The Profiles on Practice podcast is a five-part podcast spotlighting the practices of women of color artists in Canada. Presented by Femme Art Review, this series interviews artists Solea Estefani, Shauna Davis, Mira Seti, Christina Battle, and Yen Chao Lin. Um, and then in terms of the photography that you're doing now, like you photographing your family and in, in lockdown and photographing from the same room, do you feel like that's changed how you're approaching these images? I think it changed, but not not until I realized it did, if it makes sense. Mm. Because I spent most of 2020 in my parents' house in the countryside. Yeah. I think I spent roughly eight months there so a lot of my time there and it was pretty isolating itself because of isolation yeah and then just not being around my friends and my partner and the people that I normally I'm more accustomed to seeing now because I have lived in where I lived in the Horizonte for almost 
six years. Okay. So I was a little bit disconnected to the to the city itself. And the way that I started to kind of not cope, but cope with that was taking walks around my neighborhood. And I I'm just I love white girl culture, so I'm very <laughs> obsessed with musicals. And I was very much into Hamilton at the time. Nice. So, yeah, so just performing in my room. And I had a bunch of Polaroid film at the time. And I was like, okay, maybe I can make something out of that. And I just did those years with that, Mm -hmm. which it's pretty forward. It was just me trying to document what I was going through. And right by my parents' house, in my walks, I noticed there was this house that was going to be demolished. Mm -hmm. And I went ahead and documented that as well and kind of tried to make, how do I say this, kind of a connection between both me and the house, in a way. And then I came back here, where I'm now in my, my own place, and I was... I was not very comfortable with going outside. I'm still not very much. I only got my second vaccine this week. But still, I'm not as comfortable. So I felt, and I also felt like, I not that I needed to create something, but I missed creating stuff. Mm -hmm. And I started to think, okay, what I can do from my home and what are the connections between isolation and the dissident bodies and different realities and whatnot, and even experimentation. And then came the project that I'm doing for Roundtable. And the other residency too, like going back to the internet and um, living in different realities, what was uh, the name of the Gather Town? Do you want to talk a bit about that residency and like being on that platform? Yes, I can. So it's a residency. I think it's their second program now. It's called Slant Projects, and it's run by Theodore, which I love, mm-hmm. who I love. And they're, like, super welcoming, and they've tried to make, like, a digital residency, but not not digital because of COVID. Yes, but yes. digital to be more kind of, not inclusive, I'm missing the right word, but like to accommodate more people with different backgrounds and living in different countries. So most of us aren't even in the same continent. Oh, I love that. Yes, me too, especially. I'm very happy about that because I feel like also not not crochet, but being in a lot of these American and Canadian spaces, even though I'm very grateful to be there, a lot of the time it's very white and I can say white, Caucasian, whatever you prefer, mm-hmm. but like being from Latin America and even though I'm myself am perceived that white as mm-hmm. white a lot of the times, just the cultural background, it's very different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's after some, after a few encounters, I was Aww. pretty tired yeah. and being in a space where People understand this without you having to explain it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very good. So no. I recommend it. Yes. And I feel like I, mm, I don't know how to phrase this. So I'm just going to say it. Mm-hmm. But I feel like, for example, my experience in, Canadi- well, sorry, in <laughs> Canadian spaces have been, for the most part, very good and very helpful. And I'm very grateful. Mm-hmm. And like 
the roundtable residency has been very welcoming. I've met you through there. Woohoo! And yes, <laughs> and I, my first contact, like in a more educational way, was through BIPOC photography mentorship, mm -hmm. which is in Canada. It's based in Canada, founded by Heather. And then I have a show next year at Gallery 44. So cool. So, yeah, so I've gained a lot of opportunities and I've made a lot of friends and I'm very grateful. But sometimes I've had a few experiences where I didn't realize that people that were speaking to me were being kind of bigoted mm. until I told someone else about it. Yeah. And they said, oh, that's that's not okay. <laughs> oh, no. But I was wondering also is like, an emerging artist, like somebody who's just starting out, like if there were other, if there were issues that you ran into um, that you've like gained a lot of experience from or that um, like you wish you had known like a year, like two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> mm, I, I don't know. Like I ran into some things that I don't think, even if someone warned me, I don't know if I wouldn't have done it the same way. Mm. Just because of, especially as an emerging artist and coming from like, hate this expression, but like a developing country, mm -hmm. there aren't as many options and as many opportunities. So you try your best, at least I do. Yeah. But I feel like I would have been less stressed about a few things, a few encounters and a few zoom calls <laughs> just because I wouldn't prepare myself as much or try to just be the best I can because I already know the person is going to right from the moment they hear the accent they're just going to have this completely different image oh. of me yeah but I feel like some things would be more helpful to know such as don't waste all your energy in grant applications and exhibition applications if you have only been doing this for a year <laughs> because it's more likely that you're not going to get them. And if you do, congratulations, you deserve it. But <laughs> You got so I much would... practice, though. I feel like you're probably yeah. a better grant writer than I am, and I've been doing this for longer. So no, I... <laughs> I have a lot of practice, but I wish I, I'm like, I'm very grateful for the practice because I have like 50 something Google Docs. Oh my gosh. Nice. <laughs> that I can just nitpick and choose what I can use. But I feel like I wouldn't give as much, I wouldn't care as much about the notes. Mm, if yeah. that makes sense. Like rejection was something you had to learn to deal with. Yeah. And I think it's. Mm, I feel like it's not as a valuable advice because, like I said, I don't know if I would have done differently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I feel like you should just either you, I don't know, I'm just speaking with someone that doesn't exist. <laughs> you should either just get used to the fact that once you're starting out and if you don't have as many resources as others do, you just not get as many opportunities. Mm -hmm. or you can also make your own opportunities if you'd like I don't feel like I appreciate a lot the people who do that mm -hmm. like 
CEO did first nine projects and I don't know other people that did as well, but there's a lot of labor that goes into that. And you shouldn't feel pressure to just create these spaces for you. I don't know. It's, it's, it's difficult. No, I, I totally understand. And like, that was something that one of my teachers told me in art school, like create opportunities for yourself, but it is so exhausting. And like, unfortunately slash fortunately I have become one of the people in my community who makes opportunities um you (laughs) oops um but it is exhausting in like a specific way but we do need those people in the community it's Mm -hmm. just there's not a lot of support for those people either (laughs) yeah yeah I mean I do I do still take a lot of advantage Mm -hmm of the fact that most of the things are online nowadays and when I started I got I was quote-unquote lucky to be able to do that because Mm -hmm. of COVID most things went online so I don't know how my I don't know career (laughs) would look like now if I hadn't taken advantage of those things but it's also very tiring yeah Yeah, it really is. And, like, you're an international artist. Like, good for you. But also, like, you're talking across um, time zones and, like, continents. Uh, How do you, like, navigate all that? Are you just, like, out applying to, like, every single country? Or do you, like, have specific connections with specific communities? I most, not mostly, I mostly apply to things that are English-based or Mm Portuguese-based. So the language that I speak. And I feel comfortable just articulating myself in a way. But most of the opportunities I've gotten are in English-speaking countries. So Canada, I got one or two in the U.S. And the residency that I'm doing alongside with Roundtable is it's international. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of English-based as a whole because everyone is in a different country and speak different languages. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I mostly look for that. And then I make, I don't don't even like to call connections, but I make like friends. Mm -hmm. And then we let each other know about things that are going on and just even like shit talk. (laughs) (laughs) But that's mostly how I hear about things. I either hear from friends or I'm like subscribed to 50 different newsletters. Yep. <laughs> yep. They're they're very helpful. So helpful. Thank you newsletter writing people. You do yes. a good job. <laughs> yes. No, they they literally save my CV. No, and I think that that's so cool that like you're taking on these different projects and like running with the prompts and stuff or are you, like for Roundtable the prompt for it was like risk for the other residencies that you're doing, is it more open or are you working within like their themes? The roundtable one was brisk and I was lucky in a way because I'm doing the film soup process for the most part. Mm-hmm. So it's a risky process <laughs> and I got to play that into my application. But Slant Projects was more open okay. and was really looking for artists that are based in different locations and that have some type of relationship, either allyship or being themselves to queer people. Mm-hmm. Because it's founded by Theo, who's non-binary trans-masculine person. 
And it's important to just have this conversation for them, which I agree. And that was basically it. And because my work, it's like I said about dissidency, it speaks a lot to the themes of queerness and womanhood Mm -hmm. and just being racialized in different spaces and how you're read in these spaces. Do you feel like that has to do with like your photography as well? Like, do you think that that's why it's kind of your medium of choice, this idea of of representation or it's just the the thing that you fell in love with, you think? (laughs) I think a little bit of both because when I first started, like I said, I had no idea what it would become Mm -hmm. and how much time and effort and money it would take for me. For sure. So I just really liked the process and I felt like, okay, I want to make work about this Mm. and what medium can I use? And I know photography a little bit, so let's try and make it work because I feel like I could try and learn other mediums mm-hmm. by myself, but I'm still in school and I work. I have been working a nine to five job until I will be until like next month. I just quit. And so I didn't really have that time. Yeah, anymore. no, for sure. So I'm just not stuck with photography because I love it, <laughs> but I, I'm still, I feel like there's still a lot that I want to learn Mm -hmm. and a lot now that I know, even know about alternative processes and how I can just make the medium more sensible in Mm. a way to what I'm communicating or trying to at least. So it's kind of a little bit of both. I think, I don't think my brain really goes into other art forms as much I do go into writing, mm. but more in a way that I can just make sense of what I'm thinking. Like I used to do a lot of journaling mm-hmm. in the past, just for therapy. <laughs> and I really, I really enjoyed like when I went to, went ahead and read what I wrote. I was like, oh, I was thinking this or feeling this, and I didn't really, I was really wasn't really aware. Mm. and I still do that a little bit and then use that not as research but just kind of to ground myself Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and see not what I can make of it but if that's something that I should still be thinking about that feeling or something that had happened and when I read other people's texts like I've said I just write the quotes and then I kind of create this mumbo-jumbo, I don't know, of my own thoughts on top of that in colored pencils. Nice. (laughs) So I can differentiate what I'm thinking. And then that goes either into my photography Mm -hmm. or I just talk to people about it and then I process it like that. Thanks for listening to Hopping the Fence, a podcast dedicated to the fringes of the Canadian art scene. If you have an artist that you would like to hear interviewed, would like to correct and or fact check a past episode, or would just like to chat, feel free to send me a message on Instagram at hoppingthefence or by email at rebeccaecasolino at gmail.com. Thanks to the OCAD Student Union for your financial support. And thank you to all of our patrons for your ongoing support. 
It truly does help me avoid burnout and keeps this podcast rolling. If you would like to support Hopping the Fence, please visit our Patreon to subscribe. Check out the show notes for more details. If you can't donate, no worries. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Audio editing for Hopping the Fence by Emily Reimer. Original artwork by Alex Gregory. And original music by Jessica Price Eisner. Thanks so much. Bye.